Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. And hello, hello, uh, my In The Shifters. So glad you can join me for this episode of the podcast. Before we jump into it for today, I want to remind you that you can, of course, engage further in the In The Shift experience by either going to intheshift.com and you can jump on there and read a blog that I write and you can also get in touch with me via email from there or you can get onto Facebook, Instagram, Twitter if you like to do the social situation and you can find In The Shift there and as many of you will now know, we are on Patreon so if you want to financially support what we're doing here and you can also join a bit of an online group, community, whatever you want to call it there then head to patreon.com slash intheshift Yes, so that's that situation. Uh, let's think a little bit more about something serious, uh, which is what we're going to talk about for today. And we've been in the series called In the Flesh for quite a while now, actually. Been, maybe it's been a few months. And we've been exploring different ways of thinking about what it means to be human, and in particular as embodied creatures. And the reason we've been talking about this is because so often I think certain forms of faith and religion, like some versions of Christianity, for example, have served to take us, in some sense, away from our embodiedness, whether that's through our tendency to see our body as an enemy or as a site of sin or temptation, or even just as some kind of physical shell that's less important than our spirit, or maybe just through a dysfunctional and problematic understanding of sexuality and how that puts us in at kind of odds with our own body or with other people's bodies, whatever it might be. Um, so we've been working our way through this whole conversation and my suggestion is that this is this kind of complicated attitude towards our embodiedness uh, makes it, in a sense, more difficult to cultivate a healthy spirituality. And uh, and what spirituality and faith and religion, I think, does is at its best is it takes us towards human flourishing. Uh, and so this kind of negative or 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 even disinterested attitude towards our sense of embodiedness uh, doesn't necessarily help us to cultivate that kind of healthy spirituality, nor is it particularly necessary. Um, this is not the direction that Christianity has to go in, for example. And so my hope is, or, or perhaps a part of what I've been trying to do here, is say if we can unpeel some of the assumptions that have been made in this tradition, then maybe we can reclaim some healthy ways of being religious, for want of a better word, spiritual, maybe if you prefer, and, and therefore of, of being human itself. And... As a part of that conversation, then, in the next uh, two or three episodes, we'll see how we go, uh, I want to zero in on one part of that conversation that I think can help us to think through what it means to be human as embodied creatures. And that's the discussion around evolution. And I've mentioned evolution a few times throughout in the shift, just here and there so far. But I wanted to zoom in on it or focus in on it here for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because certain streams of Christianity, like maybe evangelicals or fundamentalists, Pentecostals and, and a bunch of others, have had, I think, an unnecessarily tense relationship with evolutionary theory and perhaps science more generally. And I think it's entirely unhelpful. <laughs> and secondly, taking something like science more broadly and perhaps evolution more specifically, taking it seriously, actually helps us, I think, to wrestle with some of what it really means to be human, some of what's going on in our bodies, some of, some of what is going on in the relationship between our mind or our consciousness or 
what some people call our soul, you know, what's going on here in the sense of the relationship between that sense of ourselves that is self-aware and our bodies that we inhabit and that we are. And, and what does this all mean for how to be healthy humans and to foster and cultivate then that kind of meaningful spirituality that actually meets us where we're really at, um, rather than having to reject clear and evident facts about our reality itself, you know? So we're going to dive into this conversation and it might take us a couple of episodes to get through it. We'll see how we go. But uh, that's what we're about to do. We're about to get science-y and, and religious-y uh, and spirituality. Oh, I worked for that one. Um, good. Episode 26 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. <laughs> Okay, so as I said, we're going to enter into a bit of a conversation about evolution itself. Uh, but before we do that, I think we'll actually probably end up getting into the detail of that in the next episode uh, and what it might mean for the way that we think about faith and spirituality and religion and humanness. Before we do that, in this episode, I want to actually examine the faith-science conflict that's often present for people, that thing itself. Uh, and in particular, in relation to the Christian religion, because again, as per usual, that's the context I'm speaking out of, and I think the faith science conflict is evident to people either because they see it play out in public and so it must be the way things are. You know, the, the assumption is that the public conversation is that science and, and religion is essentially a choice between the two. You know, maybe all Christians are anti-science because they believe the Bible or because they believe in ancient kind of fairy tales about God and miracles or because they perhaps believe in things that don't seem to have any hard evidence or seem contrary to the evidence. So there's that kind of assumption that's in play. And then I think there are a bunch of Christians who assume that there is a faith-science conflict, maybe for a similar set of reasons, actually, because they do think that science contradicts some of the core beliefs that they can't uh, give up or give ground on. Uh, maybe it's about what the Bible says or what they think the Bible is saying or about how we got here or about miracles or about all sorts of things. These things that suggest that there's a clash between perhaps these two opposing worlds. So at the start of this whole conversation, I guess I want to lay my cards on the table. And it's probably no surprise to you for me to say that I think the conflict between science and religion is entirely unnecessary. And in fact, any religion that's worth anything at all should be interested in truth wherever, it's, wherever it is found. And if science leads us to conclusions that mean we have to reevaluate what it is that we believe, then we shouldn't be scared of that. Any religion, I think, or spiritual system, belief structure that tells us to disbelieve evidence because it messes with the belief system you've been handed, well, that needs to be seriously critiqued. Because how can we be afraid of truth like that? So in fact, I think where the tension really lies is not actually between science and faith, but certain constructs of religious belief, including certain views of God, and then certain ways of thinking about the limits or the reach of science as well. Um, I think one of the things that happens even when I read critiques of religion by some of the new atheists, for example, you know, the sort of the Dawkins, Hitchens type figures, is they have a problem with a certain version of God and religion, I think. But when I read their arguments, I typically have the same problems with God and religion as they do. Um, but unlike them, I don't think that this therefore means all spiritual belief, all religion is therefore bankrupt because of it. Anyway, I'm probably getting a little ahead of myself. So what I'd like to do in the first instance, is actually think a little bit about the history of the West. And by the West, I guess I'm talking about Europe, North America, Australia, New Zealand, the kinds of places where many of us live. And 
find ourselves. And so I want to think about how we got here, uh, the role that religion has played within Western society, in particular Christianity, and then what happens when science emerges and why this kind of tense relationship has been set up between them and why I think it's, you know, there's some ways through this. So if we kind of backtrack in the first instance and we go back to what's often called pre-modern times, but perhaps it's a slightly wanky way to phrase it. Um, but if we go pre-enlightenment, enlightenment itself, another wanky term, um, but let's go pre-16th, 17th century, uh, in, the, in the West, what you found, generally speaking, was that belief in God was pretty much a given. Supernatural causes were at work throughout the world. In fact, not just in the West, this I think has been the kind of global perception of reality amongst most people groups, if not all people groups. In the ancient world, for example, belief in gods was was a given. Um, so the, the, you wouldn't really bump into too many atheists. The argument, the conversation was really around whose gods were more powerful, more real, more true, whatever it might have been. So there's this kind of assumption in some kind of god or gods in the West in particular, Christianity itself is the very much the dominant, had come to be the dominant religious framework, which in its own way was kind of problematic. We touched on that actually in previous episodes. Um, but what it did mean is that a certain version of Christianity and its conception of God came to dominate the Western worldview. And because the church is the kind of holder, interpreter, uh, authority in the conversations about God, well, then the church becomes authoritative in or over society, you know. Um, now, this kind of stems, in one sense, from multiple trajectories. And so if we think back through the history of the West, if we go back even back to pre-Christian times, back into philosophers like Plato, and we've bumped into Plato a few times during In the Shift. If, if you're new to In the Shift and you've just dived in at this point, you might not know, but we have bumped into Plato a few times. And Plato's a Greek philosopher several centuries before Christ. But for Plato... Uh, what is most real, if you like, is the conceptual or the ideal rather than the physical. So the material world, the physical world itself is a kind of a poor, corrupted um, resemblance of the world of pure ideas and knowledge and concepts. And, uh, and in this kind of framework of thinking, then God becomes conceived of as the ultimate good or the most pure or the most real, the most ideal and everything flows out, reality kind of manifests from, or that is the most real. And then as things become increasingly physical and material, they become, if you like, less real, or at the very least, more corrupt, more um, broken. So knowledge then in the kind of platonic framework is to know the ideal, which means that um, it's not our senses that lead us to truth, it's not what we might call empiricism, which is what can we uh, come to know through our senses of the world, through uh, touch and sight and so on, um, but it was it was philosophy and reasoning uh, in the abstract sense that would lead us to truth for Plato. Now, this does shift and change somewhat when Christianity emerges, but there is also some some similarities between Plato's way of thinking and and other religious systems and Christianity itself. So what you tend to find within Christianity is although you might not just have a world of abstract ideas, you do still have this belief that the non-physical world in some ways is the thing that has brought the physical world into being. So if you've got God, well then God is the cause of all reality. And so um, Augustine, for example, in the late third and early fourth century talks about God as the moving force of reality and of history. 
and so from Augustine's perspective, really the object of life itself is to relate yourself correctly to this supernatural, eternal, infinite, and unseen being. And if you like, I guess that's the core of many religious systems or the way they often function is that what you're trying to do in your life is figure out how do I relate to this unseen divine being or beings that, um, you know, how do I relate in a way that is most correct, that is most faithful, that will either please them or keep them happy or whatever it might be, right? So instead of just living in the material, physical world as it is, there's this, whether you're in Plato or you're in Augustine or in early Christianity, uh, you are living your life not just in terms of what is seen and known, but according to some kind of unseen, immaterial reality. Uh, you see that as well in, in theologians like Aquinas, uh, who's much later than Augustine, but he talks about these two realms of reality, the natural and the supernatural. And the supernatural was fundamentally for Aquinas the cause of the natural. But uh, here's, I guess, a facet that's really important for something like the way Western Christianity developed is that the only way you can know about the supernatural, uh, the divine, if you like, is by revelation because you can't apprehend it through your senses, through sight or sound, because it's unseen. So the only way to know of the divine is that the divine might reveal itself. God might reveal himself, if we're using the masculine terms of this Christian tradition. Um, and so therefore we are reliant on the grace of revelation. And so one of the means of revelation for Western Christians was, of course, scriptures. Uh, one of the means of revelation was Christ himself. And then uh, the church becomes the mediator of that revelation. And um, so this kind of worldview prioritizes the sense of the church as this authority because the church is helping us to interpret scripture the church therefore takes on this level of authority as the ones who help us to navigate the unseen reality. And in a sense, that's not too similar for the ancient Near East, you know, a thousand, two thousand years earlier in very ancient societies where it's the priests. Whether you're in ancient Israel or you're in other ancient societies, it's the priests who function as this, as these guides to help you navigate your relationship to these unseen realities. And so that's something that, although we see that right back in the ancient world, continues really through, even though it becomes more, um, it's, it's slowly growing as society is growing and, and advancing, uh, but the church remains the mediator of this revelation because, of course, you need the revelation in order to know uh, something of this supernatural divine reality. So in this sense then, right up until the 16th or 17th century, you'd probably say that unseen realities are, are more important than seen realities to some degree for many people. So you've got to live your life, shape your life in accordance with these unseen realities, uh, which really becomes then the function of religion, making sure you're relating appropriately to God. Um, right. So that's kind of where we find ourselves. And then 16th, 17th, 18th century, we get the onset of what's often called the Enlightenment in the West. And the Enlightenment starts to call into question these presumptions held in the pre-modern world. So what you start to get, for example, is the development of scientific method that's based on doubt. So you get someone like Descartes who says, I think, therefore I am, which really comes out of the whole premise of if I doubt everything, what can I know for sure? And I, what I can know it is, is that it is me that is doubting, and therefore I think, therefore I am. I know that I exist at least, and now we can start working our way outwards from there. Um, if things are considered essentially false or at least not proved until their evidence is gathered to prove that they are true. This becomes really the grounds of 
of kind of the scientific method that emerges at this time leads to the rapid expansion of scientific endeavor, of discovery, of innovation. And, and also coming along with this is the realization that the universe, in fact, is operating by certain scientific laws. So you have Newton, for example, who figures out how gravity works. And as the Enlightenment and science and philosophy is growing and emerging at this time, suddenly all of these things that we used to use God or the gods to explain are now being explained by the recognition that there are these sort of universal scientific laws at play here that are governing the reality and that we can actually figure some of this out. And if we can figure some of it out, then some of, a lot of the stuff that we thought God did, in fact, was just the way the universe works. And we can figure it out. Francis Bacon, this classic kind of phrase, knowledge is power. So there's, there's the surge of optimism in the modern world, right? Um, suddenly we can comprehend the workings of the universe. We're going to be able to uh, gain and acquire all of the knowledge that we need and to understand all of reality, and that will help us to solve all of our problems, and won't that be fabulous? So there are implications for technology and for science and for the Industrial Revolution and for all sorts of stuff that's exploding at this time. But this is also transforming worldview, right? Because some of the things that supernaturalism, that religion, that the church were the authority in, well, they were no longer the places um, necessarily to go to get authority. Revelation of some kind of supernatural reality governed by the church is no longer the prime source of truth. In fact, now scientists and historians and philosophers are starting to question some of the core assumptions of uh, theology and of the church and of scripture. Um, so that's very threatening, right, for religious people who are used to having control over this conversation. Now, I'm making some gross generalizations here as I sweep through this kind of history, but it's helpful for us to get a sense, at least of the overall picture, of some of what was going on here. Of course, there are subtleties and nuances all the way through this. And of course, Darwin's theory of evolution is another significant milestone in this transition away from supernatural causes at the foundation of everything, because uh, at least up until then, people were like, yeah, yeah, but how did we get here? And then Darwin's theory of evolution comes along, and we, we somehow come up with an answer to that question as well. And so if you had kind of a, what's sometimes called a God of the gaps approach to proving God, in other words, God is that which we use to explain things we can't explain, you know, so if we don't know how something works or why something's happened, we can say, oh, it was because God wants that or God's the explain, explainer of that mystery. Well, the more things we then understand, the, the less gaps there are, which means the less room we actually have for God. And slowly God gets squeezed out of the conversation. Now, alongside that then, what happens if God's getting squeezed out of the conversation and if the authority of the church and of big kind of institutions you know, like religious institutions, if that's all taking place, then the individual emerges in this process as this kind of autonomous individual, capable of, capable of acting individually as this kind of objective and reasonable person. So, you know, science itself was based on this notion of objectivity. I can stand back and assess reality for myself as an individual. And so because the universe is operating by this quite mechanistic set of laws that are understandable, well, then we can understand those. I can come to kind of objective, rational truth for myself uh, and no longer necessarily need revelation as such or the authority of the church and so on. Now, one of the things that also happens at the rise of that individual person is democratization starts to emerge. 
And so you see revolutions and you see the, the stripping down of, of royalties and monarchies, uh, and the emergence of democracy in Western states. Um, and, and coming along with that then is a changing of the nature of status itself because in the pre-modern world, status, you know, often rank and hierarchy and loyalty and bloodline were incredibly important for generating and determining where you sat in life. But in a democratized world, some of these status markers uh, are broken down. Um, but you get this emerging kind of social and economic system in which money then becomes the prime giver of status. Now, wealth obviously has always been a big deal, but instead of just being uh, born a noble, for example, you can actually acquire money through this emerging economy. Uh, but how do people know that you've got lots of money, therefore are important? Well, then you purchase various goods to demonstrate uh, the level of money that you have. And so the modern, individual, autonomous, capable, democratized person uh, increases their possessions as a way of demonstrating their status. Um, now, this process, of course, challenges religious authority, especially official and state religion, things like that. Um, and so in all of this big sweeping change, this is fundamental, massive, widespread change in society. And so understandably, perhaps, the Christian church and the West is presented with a bunch of challenges in light of all of this kind of challenge to the assumptions about supernatural causation and about what God is doing and about how we know about God and about revelation itself. And so in this process, you get some within the Christian tradition who try and sort of go with that, but then you get some who resist this kind of change vigorously. So you get the rise of real fundamentalism, for example. You get these fights that start to emerge because some Christians... Uh, see this emerging scientific discourse and this changing philosophical paradigm as an enemy of their religious belief, as a challenge to religious and spiritual authority, uh, as a way of, in some ways, damaging or tearing down the uh, set of religious assumptions that they believe we must live according to in order to keep God happy. Um, and so science then gets set up as essentially as the enemy of the church. And um, this kind of fundamentalism, for example, you know, struggles deeply with some of the insights of science. Um, and perhaps that's not just fundamentalism that's conservative or, or whole streams of Christianity entirely who struggle with this dimension of what it is that science is doing and how it might be perceived as a threat or as some kind of challenge. Um, now, of course, one of the big problems here for the kind of Christianity that really struggles with science is, is actually the kind of God that one believes in. Uh, and we talked a little bit about this if you if you listened to the episode on healing a little bit a little while ago or way back, I don't know, episode six maybe, we talked about mystics and metaphors, the way we talk about God. The kind of God we believe in, that we perceive, that we have in mind, uh, the kind of way in which God acts or can act, the things we believe about that can create a real problem um, when it comes to science if that view of God is kind of problematic itself, you know. So if we're going to talk about any kind of divine being, any kind of divine reality, um, and if that, let's just imagine for a moment, and I don't know if you believe in a God or gods or not, but let's imagine that there is a divine reality that, it, that has actually given rise to the universe in some kind of way. You know, the, the, sometimes uh, the mystics talk about, 
or even Paul Tillich as a, as a theologian talked about this idea of God as the ground of being. God is the one from whom all existence comes. Uh, so if, if, if we think about the divine in that sense, well, we should never expect that kind of God to be provable or, or reducible to the findings of our kind of modern scientific methods. Because by very definition, science is dealing with the world as we know it, right? That science is dealing with both the material and, to some degree, the immaterial world. Um, but if we're going to talk about this kind of God, well, this kind of God would be beyond or beneath or above the exploratory nature of the sciences. But if we've got God as some kind of cosmic granddaddy in the sky, hovering around up there and then sometimes coming down and intervening, if you sort of are good enough, earnest enough, whatever it might be... I think science actually tells us that this kind of way of believing is pretty unbelievable. So if you're trying to cling to that kind of view of God in your head, then science does become perhaps a real threat. Uh, because what do you do with all of the stories that you hold in your head about the way that God is and acts and, and intervenes in the world? Whereas a divine reality who is the source of all things that exist, some kind of ultimate reality, well, we can't observe this kind of God objectively like a scientist because that kind of God is the very grounds of the reality we inhabit itself. So what this means is, and I don't know if you're tracking with me here because we're sort of spinning ourselves in philosophical circles, but one of the things that happens, for example, in the science versus religion conversation is that religious people might say, look, I have this really vivid spiritual experience of God, therefore God is real. And then you have a science person say, well, actually, we can demonstrate what's happening in your brain when you have that kind of spiritual experience, and so therefore your spiritual experience is simply um, something that's going on in your brain uh, that's caused by a range of external factors. Um, now, if you're a religious person who's a bit sensitive, you might, you might resist that observation. You might say, no, I'm interacting with this God who is this being floating around out there, <laughs> And this is a supernatural experience, so don't tell me that it's, you can measure it on a brain scan. Um, and if you do, well, then that explains it away. But actually, it doesn't explain it away. How else would we expect a human being to have a spiritual experience other than through their embodied self, other than through the brain body that they are? Not just that they inhabit, but that they are. The only way for us to experience any kind of spiritual reality, if there is such a thing, is through the very natural processes of our bodies, of the world that we live in. There's no other way for us to experience anything. And so in that sense, then, if science can explain something, that doesn't mean religion has nothing left to say. It's just that science and religion, science and spirituality, science and faith, are asking what I think are different questions of reality, but in fact those questions can be complementary rather than conflictual. Um, and we'll see that perhaps emerge more in the conversation around evolution, right? Um, but even if you think about this, many people will talk, even, even conservative Christian folk will talk about God creating them, right? And yet at the same time, we'll be able to, in the same breath, 
understand and know and explain how they actually were created by their parents. And those two truths don't have to be contradictory because, in fact, they're asking a different set of questions. And we can understand that God, in fact, if God is the ground and source of all being and existence itself, of all reality, if God is some kind of ultimate reality, then the way in which God might be at work is in the very action of reality itself. Now, one of the ways of thinking about God, one of the words that theologians use is panentheism, which is to say that there is this relationship between God and all other reality, where God is in and through in all things. And this invites us to see a God who might be present in the natural processes of everyday life as we understand it. So when we study science, we are asking all sorts of fascinating questions about the very nature of this reality which give us insight into the heart of reality itself. But when we engage in faith and spirituality and religion, then we're asking questions about meaning that sometimes science can't actually address and answer. And so these actually become a space to enrich one another. If we locate God only in the kind of um, totally weird, supernatural, miraculous what seems like some kind of massive intervention from out there. If that's the only way we can sort of point to God and say, see, there's where God is. Well, then the more science discovers and figures out, the less space there is for God, right? That's a God of the gaps kind of idea. But science and faith can in fact be complementary ways of understanding reality itself, of understanding truth. Science helps us with some of our questions, but not all of them. And religion, spirituality and faith help us with some of our questions but not all of them. And I think this is kind of beautiful. And maybe this becomes even more interesting when we realise actually even the mechanical universe of Newton, you know, where there's all these really set laws and reality functions according to them, that in itself, even through science, is now coming into question because we realise through quantum mechanics and quantum physics and uh, observing the behaviour of subatomic particles and uh, all of that kind of stuff, we recognise actually reality itself is not quite as mechanistic as we thought. There's something less concrete, more unstable, weird, creative uh, happening at the very heart of matter itself that invites us to, again, open up to possibilities. And all of this means then perhaps science and faith can collide in some fascinating and beautiful and interesting ways. And if science comes up with observations that cause us, cause religious people to have to ask questions of the things that they believe, well, good, good, yes. If science observes something and says, look at this, look at this beautiful truth that we can discover through science, well, then relig good religion, I think, should be able to say, ooh, I like that, that's interesting, that's fascinating, what can we learn about this? 
And if this is kind of our framework, if this is our foundation, well, then I think maybe this sets the groundwork for having a conversation more specifically about evolution, which we want to do, and what this means for Christian faith. Because uh, rather than seeing evolution as some kind of threat to a Christian view of things, perhaps evolutionary theory becomes an invitation into a fascinating conversation about how we got here. And then that opens up a whole network of conversations about Christian faith, about spirituality, of healthy ways of thinking about what it means to be an embodied human being and therefore what spirituality might mean for me in that space. And so that's where we want to track in this conversation. So we're going to pick that up in the next episode. In the meantime, thanks again to Reese Mayshell for his sound manipulation and management skills. Don't forget to visit Patreon if you want to support this project, help it to continue and grow. And I'll see you next time on In The Shift.